Welcome to Takeaways, Life Lessons Learned. I'm your host, Hayam Mizrahi. Join me as I explore my takeaways from the people who have influenced me the most. Let's get started. Hello, fans of Takeaways. Here is another NAP Southern Nevada program recap. NAP is the Association for the Commercial Real Estate Development Industry, and the September program was really, really special. It was a one-on-one fireside chat with Nevada's 31st and current governor, Joe Lombardo. The moderator was a NAP board member, He's the esteemed chair of our programs committee. I'm talking about the international man of mystery, Mr. Dan Tutlin. And the program sponsor was Carpenter Sellers Delgado Architects. So the first thing you have to know is that this was a record live audience in attendance at the Orleans with 330 people in the room. There were another 100 people tuning in from the live Zoom broadcast. The second thing I'll tell you is, for me, how NAOP chapter president Reed Gottesman introduced the program. He opened with a powerful fact that the members of NAOP Southern Nevada make up the largest non-gaming driver of economic impact in the state of Nevada. He said it again, so I'll say it again. NAOP Southern Nevada members make up the largest non-gaming driver for economic impact in the state of Nevada I thought that was fascinating. And then um, the third thing. So Dan and, and Governor Joe took the stage. They covered a range of things, economic development throughout the state, water conservation, the importance of workforce development, education, the Oakland A's. Uh, there were several, several other things all related to commercial real estate. But one of my takeaways from this is you really get to see how Joe processes issues when he was giving his answers and you, you'll hear it. So see if you see the same thing I saw. Uh, every answer he gave was, was like a demonstration of how he went through issues and his thought process into them, how he you know thinks about it and breaks it down. And then a couple times he, he really showed that he's not afraid to change course when he receives new information, which I happen to like in a leader of our state. So that's it. I'm going to go away. You're going to hear applause and then you'll hear the full program from NAOP's September breakfast, a Q&A with Nevada State Governor Joseph Michael Lombardo. Thank you, Reed, for that. Does everyone hear this in the back? Make sure they're okay. Um, Governor, this is a record turnout, so thank you very much for that. Thank you, the board members. If you could just quick stand up. You work tirelessly for this organization. Just quick, I'm not introducing you. Um, everyone go say hi to them. Thank you, President Circle sponsors. Thank you, Carpenter Sellers. You guys have been with the organization forever. Mike Delgado, Rick Sellers. Um, they're doing the design work for the UNLV Business School. I think it's probably about $100 million. It's going to be gorgeous. 
They'll probably come asking you for some money here pretty soon. So remember what they did here today. I'm going to ask them for money. I think. <laughs> Thank you, First Lady. And uh, we all know her as Donna, who re received some great press last week on her own. She and Greg and her team uh, did the Pro Lodges deal in Apex with Lisa Brady up here. So very honored to have the First Lady, but we know Donna back from the original bus tour days and NAOP's start, so thank you very much. Um, thank you, Governor. The last time we saw you, we came up to your office in Carson City, so thanks for coming to ours at the Orleans. Um, today, we're gonna talk about, so you all know, we're gonna talk about your power and authority as governor. We're gonna talk about red tape. We're gonna talk about GoEd, the Las Vegas A's, the new state headquarters, APEX, your favorite subject will take maybe the most time is education. Um, we'll try to get into some other things. Please submit your questions. Mariana's gonna be walking around. So the stuff that uh, we don't get to here today. But the general theme today, we're gonna have a, a flow of workforce, skilled labor and workforce. Our industry suffers that when we, we lose companies to Phoenix or Salt Lake City. And what we're gonna, rely on and we're going to hear from the governors what we're doing to make sure that that doesn't happen in the future. The governor himself knows a little bit about workforce. When he was sheriff, his budget was $1.3 billion and he had 6,000 employees. So I think we're getting an expert on this. Yesterday, I see a few of us in the room here, or the day before, rather, we went to a real estate conference, a lot of speakers. The theme constantly was the influx of California and workforce. So whatever the topic was they were talking about, it was industrial, but that was kind of the theme. Um, so let's start out with something very important with uh, what did Donna teach a cop about real estate? <laughs> so before we get into that, what was your first car? <laughs> I, I will tell you this. My grandpa gave me a 1970 Pontiac Catalina, which pulled up to the parking lot of Gorman High School and was probably not the snazziest car in the parking garage. At Gorman? Yeah. It probably wasn't, so. <laughs> it added to my mystery, Lisa. Mine was a Dodge Dart. And it was lime green and I painted it uh, primer gray in my garage. Mine came primer gray. <laughs> <laughs> Now I think people get their cars purposely painted primer gray. So, so the question was, is uh, what did uh, somebody proficient in the real estate industry teach a cop? Um, well, obviously the, uh, the history or my resume is based on law enforcement. And you know, a lot of things in real estate uh, outside of doing enforcement in the real estate world um, was very minute. Uh, she did open me up, so part of the platform for running for governor and part of the platform, I believe, for the, everybody in this room in the state of Nevada is diversifying the economy. And how do we do that? Opening businesses and having available land. And so I didn't have that complete concept on the land issues that we experience here in the state of Nevada with the encumbrance of 80-something percent um, BLM and then, you know, stifling growth associated with the economy because the inability to, on a regular basis, a predictable basis, 
to receive allocations of land from the federal government and at a reasonable price. Uh, so she, she made me aware of the, those particular issues and if we were planned on or if I planned on implementing some diversification of the economy into the future, we have to identify that issue first and foremost. And it's, a, it's an issue and I'm sure you're going to ask me about it, but the, uh, until we uh, get our hands wrapped around that particular issue and ensure some more efficiency in the procurement of uh, available land, uh, we're going to continue to suffer here in the state of Nevada. I do quote you on that, not knowing your full answer in a minute, but we deal here, a lot of us in this room, with the federal government, the Bureau of Land Management, with actually getting land, whether with, within the boundaries which already is available or without the, the federal lands bill. Also just easements, like leases deals with an apex. The other thing we deal with a lot, probably mostly, is municipalities. And these are two things you don't have control over. You know, entitlements can take up to a year. George Garcia right there wore the best costume ever on a NAOP stage. He came up with a blazer wrapped in red tape. And the question I have is, how can you as governor help get over the things that you don't control, the federal government and the local municipalities, when you preach economic development and they stand in our way so often? Well, I guess it's, uh, the word would be focus. Um, I think it's constant communications with the leadership in both the municipalities, the counties, and the federal government, and have them realize the particular issue that we're dealing with. A lot of times they'll plead ignorance. I wasn't aware. Um, you know, we don't have resources. You know, the processes and the efficiencies associated with the application of permits and everything else that goes along with what we're trying to achieve is usually, um, you know, the word derogatory term, but it's not meant to be derogatory. It's just ignorance of, of the process and, and awareness of the process and, and the needs and, and the hurdles that we have to cross. Uh, that's how the state government can get involved in the local municipality, having those conversations is, hey, you're stifling what we're trying to achieve through the office of uh, the governor's office of economic development, um, LVGEA, whatever it may be, um, EDON. Uh, they have one particular direction or opportunity to help us in the economic drivers of our state, and you can't have all the regulations and the ordinances and the regulatory um, cumbersome, uh, you know, the environment that brings down the ability to move forward. And I think that is important in the governor's position to have that conversation with those, those individuals. I think that's very important. But, you know, and a lot, everything comes down to the, to the dollar, right? Everything, everything we do in life comes down to the, the money. And the state uh, controls a significant amount of, of financial support. And, the overall economic picture, and in a lot of those times, we have to you got to play hardball. Um, you know, you're 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 not going to receive these grants or or stipends or abatements because um, your failure to produce. The, we we didn't do a pre-call, but we do pre-calls for these breakfasts, and it's we'll get on the pre-calls, and the panelists will say. You know, Clark County's holding us back, and they'll say every bad word in the book for years up until about recently, a year ago, and then they'd get on stage and say, we're working hand-in-hand -hand with Clark County, we're perfect partners, and we're going to deliver this part project. But 
finally it's coming to the forefront, but what the industry needs and what we need is the support of you and your office and your, your power, if you will. And so that we thank you for. Go ahead. Um, I, I got you one of these for your office. You can put it on. It's laminated. You can always have a reference point to it. So just in case. No, I'm, 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 I appreciate you saying that, though, Dan, and I appreciate the lamination. But the, uh, um, but the, the what I want to say reference this uh, public policy initiative document is it's key to what, why we're all sitting here. And, and I think you did a fantastic job. Your organization did a fantastic job in developing these, these initiatives. But if you go through them bullet by bullet, it's exactly what I talked about on the campaign trail and what I talked about in the state of the state uh, when I got sworn in and what I continue to talk about on a daily basis. This is how we're gonna ch achieve success. It's a very well done document, and I, I think you deserve. Uh, well, thank Steve Niger, thank the entire NAOP board, thank Katrina, thank Jana. Um, so I mean, but in, so in, thank you. It's for, my turn for, to talk. So you ready? You ready for my notes? Read policy page. Yeah, yeah, read policy. Well, but you know, in particular, I even highlighted while I was sitting there, and Reed was doing what he was doing, and. Uh, you know, support programs to diversify our economy, incentivize businesses to relocate to Nevada. You know, simple Simon stuff. Eliminate unnecessary statutory, regulatory, and local ordinances. And that's the key one I, I talked, I quite often talk about outside of the financial picture or the, you know, the ability to provide financial incentives is these um, unnecessary, outdated uh, red tape, um, regulations and ordinances that people don't put eyes on on a regular basis say hey this is outdated this is cumbersome we could do a, a be more effective and efficient in another way by establishing that so in the first weeks of my administration I did an executive order to identify those regulations so I tasked each one of the department heads to identify simple Simon uh, 10 ordinances and or regulations that we could uh, go through the procedure of repealing in order to help business uh, be more successful and more efficient. Here's the bad part of that. It was a simple exercise. It was done fairly simply. Any one of us, not even being the head of a, a certain department, could walk in there day one and, and just do a preview of those ordinances and regulations that they are responsible for and pick out 10 at the snap of a finger and say, hey, why are we doing this? So. The, now, let me introduce you to government. <laughs> so that was done, all right? We, th that exercise was completed. So now, I, in my naivete of a new governor, I said, okay, well, let's get rid of them. You can't do that, all right, governor? You have to, there's a process associated with that. Some of them have an NRS attached to them, which means they're in, in, in law or they're in the administrative code and you have to present those ones you wish to uh, change through the legislative process. So we did it in this process, now in the next legislative session, we will attempt to repeal all those. On Turn in the cruise ship, it's nice and slow. Slow, it's slow. I think Clark County's the same way, it's slow. I think they're starting to change some policies. I see Tim Costello here, he's on the Planning Commission and Industrial Developer. Um, and he knows a lot about this process on, on the local level. Tom Burns couldn't make it, and Tina Quigley couldn't make it. They're, I think, in D.C. We meet with both of them, NAOP does, about every quarter. Hiam spearheaded that when Tina took over, just to 
kind of get the conversation going, just like you said earlier, of what we're all doing. Um, wh what do you think? I'm going to read about an abatement that just came out on September 15th. The California-based maker of traditional Mexican food and sauces receives 2.3 million in tax abatements from the state to build a manufacturing facility in North Las Vegas. Juanita Foods plans to add 149 jobs over five years with an average wage of $37.97 an hour. The company projected to make $20 million in capital investments and generate $19 million in tax revenue. Why is GoEd important to you, to Nevada, and to NAOP? Well, you read it right there why it's important. Um, the ability of those particular officers to uh, recruit businesses and you know, we're, we're in a constant competition with every other state in the union, especially in, in the western part of the United States, um, because we have similar environmental needs or, or desires for quality of life and everything else. And people want to have their families uh, within this uh, area of regions in the western United States. So how is Nevada better than California, Utah, New Mexico? Every one of you in this room has had these conversations. And, you know, we have, we have space, we have power. And we have sunshine, right? And, and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about water here in a minute. Um, but so how do we convince them to come here versus anywhere else? And, and the backbone of that is too is workforce and education, right? And we're going to talk about that. Uh, so you have to incentivize uh, these companies to make it. You know, they're they're lifting up the roofs. They're putting down a new foundation. Do you have you have industrial space available? You have office property uh, space available? Whatever it may be. Um, convince me to come and put my roots down here and take on that cost associated with that change and that's the intent of GoEd and all the other uh, economic drivers and they would not I had a, a specific conversation because I'm a director of the board when we do the board and approve those incentives and abatements I had a, um, a direct conversation with the CFO of Juanita's and the driver was those tax incentives. So you have the other side of the fence, you know, people that aren't concerned with economic drivers are more concerned with social programs and the funding of those and, you know, whatever the economic drivers that support those so social programs. And they say you're just giving away, you know, already wealthy people money. And I'm sure that'll be part of the A's conversation we have. Um, but it's bigger than that. It's, a, it's on an average, GoEd and their incentive abatements is $40 um, return on every dollar abated. Um, return on investment, you can't, you can't argue with that. But the issue with this is it's a long-term vision versus a short-term vision. And people want satisfaction immediately. Well, what are they doing for us right now? Well, this is a long-term solution uh, to our vision of what we're trying to achieve. So, to answer your question, it's a good thing. There was, during, I think it was Tesla, there was a transparency debate. Um, right. And if you asked any one of us that we had to share our personal contracts and negotiations with our competitors while the deal was going on, we'd all cry nonsense. But you're dealing with taxpayer money. How do you strike a balance between cutting yeah, the deal? That's a great question. And, and, and we have to thrive on transparency in government or, or we end up with corruption, right? And, uh, and in this case, those are all continued negotiations. Until you sign in on the dotted line, there's continued negotiation, and that's, that's not the transparency that's needed and what we're trying to achieve in the business space. Um, so things could be changed 
at the drop of a hat, you could have somebody come out from the outside in a competitive edge, say, well, we'll offer this. And um, I think it's important for us to, to rely on that ability um, to compartmentalize and keep it secret, for, for lack of a better term, until it were time to, it's time to sign on the dotted line. On to the A's. It was very bipartisan and a lot of strange bedfellows in the legislature on both sides. Um, what, let's do a show of hands. Who's for the A's coming here under the... As long as they change the owner. I was just one question. One question. Um, and who's against the A's coming here? So it seems pretty positive. Why did you stand behind the A's? What was, why, why are the A's so important to Las Vegas? To me, you got to remove yourself. You got to put your mindset in the business mindset of the A's. You got to remove yourself for your dislike for the sports team for whatever reason it may be. Um, and it's more about what what they can do for us here in the state of Nevada. You know, we had if you look through all the social media posts and all the negativity with the decisions to bring the A's here because they're a loser team and. Well, you know, let's get a better team. You know, that's just not how the, the world works. Um, and to have that opportunity to bring a professional level baseball team into our environment speaks volumes. And, and here, here's, the, here's the measurement of it. So we have, the, we have the Golden Knights, we have the UNLV, and who else would have the Raiders, right? And we're, we're attempting to get basketball and we're attempting to get professional soccer. You know, there's, there's things all across the board. And those particular sports that are already here occupy certain months of the year, of the calendar year. During the summer, there's four, four months of void of activity, all right? And people, the, gambling is not supporting what we're trying to achieve in the state of Nevada uh, currently in, in perpetuity like we thought in years past. And that's why you have to diversify. So those four months of that void of activity can be filled by Major League Baseball because that's when their season is. And, and the gentleman up here in the front said get rid of the owner. But, <laughs> but here's an important piece. Remember how the Raiders showed up, right? The, owners didn't, the owner didn't really put any money into the pot. Right, and then we incurred uh, room tax and everything else that went along with funding that project. And look how successful it is. They, they predict the measurement of it now is probably seven uh, to one return on investment. And um, they anticipate the A's will be more like eight to one. Um, and the owners uh, put a significant amount of their own personal wealth into the project, which was not, didn't occur in other projects that we've um, incentivized. And that's uh, well over a, a billion dollars. So the, the, I guess to put some of your own blood into the game was the request for the tax help. Um, there was, you know, because it becomes a business model. So what is that return on that? I mentioned it eight to one in the long term. And here's the coup de gras. In 30 years, at the end of that contract with, uh, with Clark County and the state, the county owns that stadium. So that individual is gonna put a billion dollars into the system, obviously with the intent to make money, uh, but he's gonna to have to walk away from a, a structure that he built uh, as part of the process. Uh, thank you, moving on to more real estate. Congratulations for saving the state $350 million, Mr. Strickland, by uh, buying the Thomas and Mack headquarters. 
or Thomas and Mack buildings for the state headquarters. Um, why don't you walk us through that? Do you want to do it? He said he, <laughs> he said you counted parking spaces. That's how I much did of, count. He said you're a hands-on guy. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, let's back up. Uh, uh, why? Why? Why are we doing it? And an important piece on this is is and, and this may offend some of you in the room because you're in that business, but the state was leasing 99% of their buildings, all right? And to me, I don't understand the economic driver of leasing a building for 30 plus years. I understand it in the short term or whatever your investment portfolio may be, um, but in the, we're a long-term agency. The state's not going away, all right? Particular operations within the state, DMV and, and Department of Education, whatever it may be, uh, health services, uh, gaming control, they're, they're going to be here in perpetuity. And for us to, to lose uh, taxpayer money associated with leases and renegotiating leases and dealing with uh, outside landlords and, and, and infrastructure and your FF&Es on the interiors of the buildings and maintenance and HVACs, everything that goes along with it is very cumbersome for a state agency because of the red tape and the bureaucracy just to get anything done to even repair an air conditioning system. So we could be more effective and efficient if we own the buildings, we centralized our operations, and um, have a location where individuals that demand or request the services of the state know where to go, know how to go through the process, and have an understanding of that. You would be very surprised, I, I bet you'd be very disturbed if I explained to you if you had to go, you know, do a permit over here or pay your taxes over there or you got to go see the Department of Education over here. Anything you do in your daily lives and you're like, where do I got to go? And, and it's, I don't understand it. I couldn't figure it out. You know, we have workforce development in 17 different departments and they're not talking to each other. So this ensures some um, momentum in the workspace and in versus building a building to which we were going to have to do because of uh, Grant Sawyer's and disrepair and it's the return on investment is, is the opposite of what you want to achieve. And so we saved probably $270 million in that decision on the front end. And then on the long term, we're saving 800, 800, 800 million on an annual basis um, in lease payments. So, so I, I almost said 800,000, it's 800 million. So it's a, it's, 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 a, it's a return on investment. It makes sense, a business sense. And that's what we did. So, so then, once you make that decision, where do you go? And luckily, uh, Thomas and Mac had a complex for us that was in the throes of being you know, vacated or, or determined what they were gonna do with it. And it's a perfect landlord, a perfect uh, um, partner. And we were able to snap it up. And my understanding and talking with the, those individuals, if we had not made the decision because of the change in the economic drivers here locally, uh, we would not have been able to attain them, right? And they probably would have doubled the price. That's what they do. So they, uh, <laughs> but the- uh, We're capitalists here at NAOP, Governor. So the, 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 to boil it all down, uh, we're gonna be more efficient as a state uh, government and uh, we're gonna be more efficient with your taxpayer dollars.
I think Haim will give you a listing agreement for the Grant Sawyer building to sign right now if you'd want to do that. So um, bring it out, buddy. <laughs> a couple years ago, nobody but Mayor John Lee was talking about Apex. Now it seems like all of us are. We've talked about it on this stage a lot. It's always about the real estate. Um, we have our board member, Lisa, I brought her up. She was with Prologis. By the way, Naop, I'm going to have to brag. You know, we have on the board David Strickland working with you. We have Lisa doing Prologis, you know, big deal for the state. We're a really good organization, and I'm glad you, everyone's getting along or coming along with it. Um, but I want to talk about Apex in this sense, and I'm going to read a, a one or two things. But as it's not with the sticks and the concrete and the price per square foot and cap rates, but about economic development and skilled workforce. Um, Patrick, who couldn't make it from the RJ, has written some great things on the NAOP breakfast. He covers them almost every time and a lot on Apex. But he wrote that Nevada is currently leading the nation, regarding Apex, leading the nation in job growth and experiencing an uptick in college-educated workers moving to Clark County. Southern Nevada added 5,700 industrial jobs between May of this year of May of 22 and May of this year, according to Nevada Department of Employment, Training, and Rehabilitation. All industrial sectors saw job growth. The Las Vegas Valley saw the most growth in education and healthcare, followed by construction services, leisure, hospitality, signaling a shift away from the Valley's traditional breadwinners, casino, and gaming. And then secondly, I see Jared Luke with North Las Vegas in the audience. He said in the same article, that Apex is luring companies to the entire Las Vegas Valley and is benefiting from the industrial growth. I think that it's kind of been a misconception about the Las Vegas Valley that we don't have skilled labor force. With all these folks moving into the valley in the last 10 years and the growth in charter schools, growth in technical academies, and the additional curriculum at UNLV and College of Southern Nevada, we have filled some of that gap. We're going to talk more about education just on education in a little bit. But on the APEC side, how are we doing? What kind of calls are you getting that not transparency that, that are helping us build a better workforce? So uh, you mentioned jobs uh, associated with that. And so I want to back up and go back to the A's just for a minute because I failed Please to mention do. You know, another reason why is obviously jobs. But you know, the, the argument is, well, those are short-term jobs until the, the, the facility is completed. Um, Granted, it will not be the same number when the facility is completed, but the prediction, the, the, you know, the, the prognosticators and people that um, do the measurements of that data predict the 14,000 construction jobs during that process. So 2028, you know, you have a, you have a good um, economic base in the construction industry for those um, particular years. And then the prediction is 8,000 permanent jobs upon completion, you know, so different events throughout the, the entire 365 and 24-7. Um, and then approximately 9,000 gig, gig workers, you know, so when you do have an event, they come in and do food service, whatever it may be. So that's another reason for those particular projects to, um, to bring them on board and breed success. Now you, you, you go over into Apex and it's a whole different um, the, the people that wrote that article did a fantastic job identifying the needs and the reasons why Apex is so important here in the Las Vegas Valley. So you got your manufacturing that will occur there, which is, is a higher level of, of education and, and need. 
um, nationwide to include the state of Nevada with those people living here and er earning good wages, right? And then you have your logistics piece, which is already um, present in North Las Vegas, but we can expand on that, which is a continual expansion needed with the benefit of I-15. Um, and GOED has done a pretty good job with the, in partnership with the Water uh, Authority in ensuring the companies that do come in place are less, um, the need for water is part of the process, especially in the manufacturing, is not overwhelming um, the need for the water for everybody else in our communities. So they're, they're, they're mandating closed loops as part of the process and, and reconstituting the water that is used. And those are the drivers that they're tr attempting to um, bring on board. And that will help in the competition piece with Arizona, because Arizona hasn't necessarily put restrictions in place. But when the feds come in in 2026 and renegotiate the Colorado River Pack, um, Arizona is going to be in a little bit of trouble because there's going to have to be some significant retrofitting for evaporative cooling versus air conditioning. Those traditional environments um, are all part of it. So what was the other part of the question? I think you touched it all, just how important the economic driver you touched and the workforce driver Apex is. So, but the, one of the reporters uh, alluded to it's not as bad as... Oh, that was Jared Luke from North Las Vegas. Where is Jared? Oh, there he is. Hey, Jared. Um, the, uh, it's not as, um, as bad as people think it is in the workforce space, and I have to disagree with that. Yes, we're putting the mechanisms in place, and we have been for the last few years. Uh, we're developing the, the, school, the education environment uh, to occupy those space, but it takes a while for those individuals to be educated and then occupy those jobs. There is a, there is a, a definitive lack of labor in our current environment, especially when you, you talk about in the engineering space and the more technical jobs. Um, people are definitely clamoring for those, those particular disciplines in the work environment. And, and I think his point is we have some of the foundation pieces oh, yeah, we're yeah. working on we definitely with have. the university, and with STEM, he, with stuff like that. Yeah, and I'm glad he mentioned the, the charter schools because that's going to be a significant uh, push for us because we, when we talk about workforce education and development, it's usually in the secondary education, you know, post uh, K through 12. Well, we, we're soon, we're now realizing, no, you have to in, be inclusive in, in the 8th, 9th through 12th environment. Um, to have individuals to be able to occupy those jobs. We make a point of not having political candidates up here during season, this and that, because we're not about that. We had our government affairs um, education meeting about two weeks ago, and our lobbyist um, informed us of the session and what was going on and what the future looked like, how it pertained to NAOP, because really that's all we kind of care about in this room. And. <laughs> And uh, one of it was that it was kind of a foregone conclusion that there was going to be a supermajority in the legislature. So the question is, not politically because you don't want that, but how does that, how would a supermajority hurt NAOP? Right. How would it hurt great, our great industry? Great question. And I'll start it off by saying um, this, this is a nonpartisan issue. Correct. Right? So I, I think it's important for people to realize that, whether no matter which side of the fence you're on or whether you're in, independent or I not. I didn't do a show of hands of who voted for you. It uh, wasn't fair to anyone. 
I'm sitting here, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> the, uh, it's a great question. It's a great question. And nothing good comes out of a totalitarian environment, all right? And what I mean by that, everybody being of the same party, of the same mindset, and you have groupthink, and you're not successful in that endeavor. And there's a lot of unintended consequences as a result of that. So you would think, hey, Governor, would you want all Republicans? Would you want a supermajority on the legislature? I said, no, that's, that's just not good government. And you start pushing uh, extreme ideas, and extreme ideas tend to get through the process when you have supermajorities, no matter which side of the fence it's on. And currently in the state of Nevada, the stopgap is your governor, um, because we do have, we currently have a supermajority in the assembly, and we have a majority in the Senate. And by the simple fact that we don't have a supermajority in the Senate, I have the authority of a veto. And when I determine, as your elected uh, governor, that I believe a law to be flawed or detrimental to a certain group of individuals versus, you know, more beneficial to a minority group versus a majority group, I make a decision whether it should be law or not. And then that veto, I make that decision via a veto, and then eventually it'll go back to the legislature for reevaluation if they want to resubmit it. Um, and again, go through the process. But because we don't have a supermajority in both houses, they have to go through that process. If they have a supermajority, my veto means nothing. They just reintroduce it into the legislative process and it passes. And that's not good government. It just, you don't have any uh, argument, you don't have any uh, consensus, you don't have any discourse, you don't have any discussion. Uh, as a result of a law uh, coming forward, and you have one singular thought process with it. And, and as we know in, in national policies and national government and the environment, the extremes are, seem to be winning. And we're all suffering as a result of it. And we need to get more back in the middle. And, and the, uh, the lack of a supermajority brings you back to the middle. Now, the state of affairs in in your government here in the state of Nevada is we have to make a decision on candidates in 2024. Um, there's a significant number of senators are up for election. There's a significant number of assembly. Well, actually all assembly, it happens every two years in, in, in their world. And we have to determine what that dynamic looks like as a result of those elections. So my side of the house, my team is working um, hard to identify viable candidates. And remember I said it's a nonpartisan issue, but it is a partisan issue when you're identifying the candidates and deciding how you, what you want it to look like. So our intent is to get out of the supermajority and you know, ideally we would get out of the majority um, process, but in this case, we're, our concern is the supermajority, which would void my ability to veto bills. Thank you. I'm gonna quote the Las Vegas Sun Lombardo signed record-setting education budget, expanding per-pupil funding for public schools at unprecedented levels, giving failing schools the resources they need to improve, at the same time initiated a public education audit, which I think we would all agree that we like most of that. Um, 
we all talk in here about education. We talk about economic diversification and higher paying jobs. We all want an want educated, skilled workforce in good schools. It seemed to be lacking. I mean, if you ask everyone in the room, the first thing you'd say is 50th. That's, that's the number. You don't, we don't get to hear the in the weeds stuff. Um, we do hear from brokers and owners and everyone that people go to Phoenix and Salt Lake City um, sometimes for, because of the skilled workforce and education issue. So now you have as much time as allowed to kind of just tee up education. Why do you, you know what we're talking about. Why is education important to NAOP, knowing what you know about it, NAOP? Well, it, it, to bring it back in the, when you, how to build a watch, right? It's, uh, and what I mean by that is, why is education important? Everybody in this room knows that. I mean, we have an educated audience and have an understanding of the drivers and ability to get business done. And you don't have an understanding of that without education. Education provides that vision for a diversified economy. Education provides that wherewithal for you to have a quality of life and ability to make a, a significant living and, and, and have pride in yourself. So there's no, I don't think there's any, Oh, I don't think there's any argument that education is necessary, right? They're against it. And uh, so with that in mindset, and you mentioned it, you know, 4950, depending on what year it is, in the measurement of the education system, um, we have to fix that. Because the overall mindset was diversifying the economy. And how do you diversify the economy? Education that occupies the labor that diversifies the economy, right? And we have to fix that and for the state of Nevada to move forward. I had mentioned it before, the mother's milk of our economy, and as long as most of us in the room has lived here, has been gaming. And we're now starting to see the proliferation of gaming across the entire United States and every state in the union. And to, so now we're starting to suffer as a result of that because of that mindset that we, all we had to do was concentrate on gaming and it'll carry us in perpetuity. Well, that's not the case. So we talk about diversifying the economy, right? And, and this is not some groundbreaking theory that your governor came up with. Every governor that's ever occupied that seat has said the same thing prior to me. But the key point on that is the education piece. And the education hasn't been fixed in previous governors. We've tried uh, through time, different programs have come on board. And so we've done a very comprehensive review in my administration on what programs need to be put into place, what the Department of Education could push down to the, the districts in each county, and what we believe is what success in education looks like. All right, so the other argument, you know, it's probably in that same article, you know, the, the highest level of financial injection into the education system in the state of Nevada in history, right? But then you have the, the naysayers say, well, we, we've done that in years past and we continue to uh, be failing. We continue to be failing. So money is not the answer. Well, it's part of the three-legged stool, right? If you don't have the money, if you don't have the infrastructure, you don't have the space for the teachers and, and everything that goes along with the, the education environment, um, you're gonna fail on that leg of the stool. Now, the second part of that stool is the safety within the school environment. We pushed that legislation through in, the, uh, in this last session and, and we were successful in that. And so it, it makes kids comfortable 
with, with their learning environment. Um, and then the other part of that is your teachers. And we, you, you see in the press all the issues going on with their collective bargaining agreement here in Clark County. Uh, thankfully, Washoe just settled theirs yesterday. And unfortunately, here in Clark County, uh, they're going to impasse. And subsequently, an arbitrator will make a decision on their financial package. And why is that so important? You'll hear people say, the teachers make plenty of money. All right, you do it a comparison in, in, in the cost of living as compared to any other state, and you, you graph that out with that data, and we're in the upper 25 percentile in teacher pay. But what we are, um, we're in the lowest, uh, absolutely at the bottom, in teacher per student ratio. And that's because of lack of infrastructure and lack of teachers. And so, okay, so Governor, where are you going with this? Well. You had to have a, continue to have the ability to provide a quality level of living through a financial package to fill that void in the absence of teachers. So here in Clark County, as an example, because we're here um, last year on an average 1,800 vacancies in the school district uh, with teachers, and those spaces are occupied by substitute teachers. All right, and those substitute teachers, the, the, the qualifications of those substitute teachers uh, was diminished in order to occupy, to get the numbers you needed to simply a high school diploma. Okay, so that's the environment you're looking in. And so now that number's up to 2,000 in today's environment. So we have the, the, all three of those prongs of the, of the stool have to come together to fix education. And that's what we're attempting to do. In previous administrations, maybe two of the three were present, maybe one of the three were present, but hopefully we'll be able to maintain the momentum to keep all three of those legs of the stool um, to fix education. Now, the, what I would ask of this audience and the, the media is here, and what I would ask of the public is patience. It doesn't happen overnight. So the report card from the Department of Education from the state came out yesterday and if, if you notice, the RJ did an article on it and, and Clark County School District's failing in that report card. I don't think that was a secret. Um, but the, the measurement tool they use is whether you can read by three and what your math proficiency is in the eighth grade. And that's, that's what they, that tends to be the standard across the United States. And we're in the lower uh, 30 percentile. And that is not success for society or economy or an environment uh, that, that we want to live in. And so when we're talking about diversification and bringing tax incentives you know, for companies, education is a big part of that. Am I going to have a workforce that could occupy my jobs? Am I going to have an education system for my kids to go to school? And so the, the other driver on that is, okay, so if none of that's working, Governor, what are we going to do? School choice. And that is one of my drivers in what I stand for in, the, in that piece. And, and it was mentioned, you got an expansion of charter schools, that's part of school choice. Uh, you know, the big dilemma that went on in the press over opportunity scholarships, that's school's choice. So we got to bring all those different uh, abilities to come forward. So just because uh, the color of your skin or your, your current economic, uh, you know, ability should not have an effect on your education. And that's what we're trying to achieve. Thank you, Mariana. Are you, Omar? We have questions from the audience. 
She took the mic. She left. There she is. All right, we're online. There you go. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Mr. Governor. This has been a great discussion so far. We really appreciate your time being here. We do have a few questions, and while we were just wrapping up on the topic of education, uh, one of the questions that came in uh, asks, the government has funded an increase of teachers' salaries. What is your opinion of the current contentious negotiations between the Clark County Education Association and the school district? I guess the easy answer would be it's pathetic, but it, that's not the answer. Um, so here, here's something that people need to be aware of. And granted, yeah, I, I, I totally support with the injection of you know significant amount of monetary wherewithal into the education system that it's inclusive of teacher salary. They need it. They need a raise. All right. They do. They're, they're similar to uh, state workers in the last three decades who've had like three percent uh, increase in their colas in 30 years. So. You're not going to get quality people that way. Nor here's an here's a here's an anecdotal number for you. I had 35 people that work for state government on welfare. 35. That's ridiculous. That's unacceptable. And how do you expect to have quality people to provide a service that you deserve um, if you don't have anybody to occupy those jobs? So the backup on on the on the negotiations. So I support collective bargaining. I think it should be a, a discussion between the uh, management and, and labor and you know, to, to protect the workers and what they're trying to do to achieve and ensure they have uh, security in their, in their work environment. But it also has to fall on the back of the management and the system on the ability to pay. So there is an ability to pay in the current Thing. And so th they have negotiated a significant um, amount of a raise, not a significant, but a, a raise in a biennium. So the state government works in a two-year budget process, not, a, not an annual budget process. So they negotiate their contracts on a two-year window. Um, so there was a, so with that money provided, I'm, I'm going to try to um, give you the Reader's Digest on this. There is a bill that was passed in the legislature for an additional $250 million directly related to teacher salaries. Now, the problem is when, when you're in government work, you have this thing, it's called PERS, your public employees retirement system. And if you put that into a COLA system outside of a, a, a bonus system, you have to pay that raise in perpetuity. The state does, okay? And the administrative administration appropriately says, well, we're not going to put you in that position, Governor, because you won't be able to fund our education system two years from now, so we're, we're trying to limit the use of that extra $250 million. Um, and it puts them in a position, too, because they have to cut services in order to pay for that. So it's a management of that and what that looks like and how it's going to be spent, whether it's in, in, in a COLA system or whether it's in a bonus system and how it can be better utilized to bring teachers into the system. Uh, so that's, that's the rub there. So I, it's interesting enough, I talked to a very uh, respected businessman uh, here last week and we got engaged in that conversation last week and, and I explained them the nuances of the collective bargaining and he says, well, they, you have the money, just give it to them. And I said, it's not as simple as that. You know, if we're on a fiscal cliff, 
two years from now. That's the reason why we increased the rainy day fund from 20 to 26 percent. So in case we are in the fiscal cliff or we have some similar situated crisis um, uh, similar to COVID, God forbid, um, I have to manage that for all of you. And that puts us, the teachers association, in a fiscal cliff. That doesn't matter. Teachers are important. Give them the money, you'll find, you'll find it, Governor. And that's not the answer. And this is from a very well-respected dollar and cent guy. And, and I have to look at the future versus tomorrow. So. Thank you. We had a question. I know there was a, we briefly touched on uh, the possibility of talking about more on the water discussions, water issues that are going on throughout the state. Uh, I'd like to get your take, Mr. Governor, on the water issues um, from your standpoint and all of the discussions and negotiations that have been going on regarding the Colorado Basin. And, you know, we've had a very wet winter, <laughs> a very wet summer, and curious on uh, if we can touch a little bit more on that topic. Oh, and, and one other thing, too, you may be aware of the moratorium in effect for evaporative coolers that's going to affect here early part of next year, and uh, it all kind of ties in together. So we'd love to hear a little bit more from you on that. Um, so I, I think I alluded to the evaporative cooler situation earlier in the, in the discussion, but the water situation is a real situation, all right? And, and everybody in the room knows that. I'm, I'm speaking to the choir. But it's not as dire as people seem to think. I get presented with this question uh, uh, more than uh, one time a week. Uh, what is the real situation of the Colorado River? So we received 94% of our consumptive water via the Colorado River here in southern Nevada. We don't receive any water in the, the state of Nevada in northern Nevada via the Colorado River. That's all from a different mountain range and a different system. Um, they're not in the same boat as we are here in southern Nevada in comparison, but yeah, they are experiencing a, a, a drought in that region, but here in Southern Nevada, um, we are considered a lower basin versus an upper basin state. And on, on states that receive the water allocations from the Colorado River, we manage the dam um, that provides electricity to three of the lower basin states. And there's, there's a, the concern with the Deadpool environment at the dam, if it goes below a certain level, at the dam, we were unable to uh, generate hydroelectricity. So that's a, that's a double issue uh, on the lower when you go into Arizona and California and Mexico. So the Colorado River Pack manages all that, all right? And the, and the, the Water Authority has, I provide a board, every one of the states provides a board that is part of that process and the management of the pack. The pack is going to be renegotiated in 2026, but we saw a need to renegotiate it here recently, just as early as a month ago, um, by the pushing of the feds. Say, hey, you got to get on top of this now because you're not going to make it to 2026 in that situation. Um, so they renegotiated a, a remediation or an allocation, a lessening of the allocation in each one of the lower basin states until we get to 2026. So the key issue to all of this, in my opinion, and you could say it to the press if you want, is the agricultural environment in Southern California, yeah. okay? We don't need to supply uh, our consumptive water to California so they can grow almond trees and alfalfa. 
It's two of the largest agricultural um, products uh, um, that require this, the most amount of water. And a lot of that product is leaving the United States for other environments, economic. So the feds, in my opinion, are going to need to come in and subsidize that, that, uh, that agricultural uh, land for, to, to take it over and remove that particular product so that we have an insurance of reserves of water. So our current situation is, depending on who you talk to, but the Water Authority is, is saying approximately eight years of reserve water banked in the water table. So if, if the Colorado River stopped flowing today, uh, we'll be able to stain our, our environment here in Las Vegas for the next eight years. That's not enough years. We need, we need to assure we embank you know, approximately 30 years in that process. And so all these remediation pieces you're doing, evaporative cooling, uh, efficiency in landscaping, and the removal of turf, and all those kind of things are working. We are actually the most efficient state out of all the participating states, which is seven, in that process. And we, we don't even use what water we are allocated. So you're gonna say, well, then why are we keep pulling turf and all that stuff? Because we're trying to bank the water uh, for the benefit of us uh, versus, you know, so we know what it looks like into the future. So you have other people, other scientists are saying we have more than eight years. And so there's a, there's a and I, I, I trust the water authority because they're more conservative than what other people are trying to achieve. So I unfortunately get in the discussions on a daily basis about um, turf and removal and HOAs and, and I don't want to talk to HOAs, but the, uh, <laughs> but the, uh, um, so that's the current situation. Hopefully I gave you some semblance of understanding of what the water situation is. Um, we are not going to dry up tomorrow. All right. I think it's important for people to realize that because when you are trying to recruit businesses and you're trying to build businesses here, People have to be comfortable with the water situation. And I, I, I feel comfortable saying, come one, come all, um, water is not going to be a limiter. We told Elizabeth we would have you out of here at 9.15. Okay. We, we keep our word here. We keep our contracts. <laughs> um, if you have any last words. But I just want to thank you personally. Thank you on behalf of NAOP. Thanks, Carpenter Sellers. And thanks for record attendance for NAOP Breakfast. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Takeaways podcast is about sharing and paying it forward. If you like this show, please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. It really goes a long way. And if you really like the show, please share takeaways with a friend. Thank you and tune in next time.